we find that only 8 to 10 percent of first-gen students even study abroad. However, those that do study abroad are able to graduate within six years, they have a higher graduation rate, they have higher GPAs, so there's tangible benefits to actually studying abroad. So if we can reach this population of our students, it really is an automatic benefit for them. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides Inaugural Podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with WorldStrides, and I am so excited for this week's episode. As our listeners surely know, the opportunity to study abroad can be transformative. But for first-generation students, it's not just about transformation. It's about trailblazing a path not taken by anyone in their families before them not only through college, but through the education abroad process too. To that end, today's episode seeks answers to the following question. What should be top of mind as we think about the ways in which we as practitioners are engaging, supporting, and uplifting the first-generation students on our campus as they navigate study abroad? Joining us today is the ever-inspiring and brilliant Dr. Maggie Mahoney, Director of Global Engagement at the University of Houston. I always feel uplifted by Maggie's dedication and commitment to creating life-changing opportunities for her students and her genuine desire to create pathways for students to access global education, particularly those who are the first in their families to attend college. I love the University of Houston for a lot of reasons. I'm inspired by the way leadership at the University of Houston talks about the student body there being what U.S. higher education will look like in 10 to 15 years. Houston is the second most diverse tier one institution in the nation. Of its nearly 47,000 students, an impressive 45% are first-generation students. 45% talk about moving the needle. Of its 38,000 undergrads, nearly 40% are Pell Grant recipients. Maggie's work, especially with first-generation students, has been groundbreaking. Through our conversation, We'll uncover the challenges first-generation students face, the strategies employed at the University of Houston to overcome these barriers, and the cultural nuances that play a critical role. We'll also dive into collaborations, outreach strategies, and the very core of what makes the University of Houston stand out in the realm of international education. Over the course of this episode, we'll also delve into Maggie's professional journey, understanding the landscape of education abroad at the University of Houston. We'll explore her recognition as a Gilman International Scholarship Advisor Ambassador, where she advises colleges across the nation on guiding students through the scholarship application process. On top of that, we'll delve into her doctoral research on ethical leadership and its relation to student involvement and global competence. Success stories and the power of diversity will be at the heart of our conversation today, and we'll wrap up with a reflection on the future of study abroad in the coming years. So stay tuned, dear listeners. You did not want to miss this episode. Dr. Maggie Mahoney, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. Please just call me Maggie. (laughs) My pleasure. Okay, Maggie. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. To begin, could you please tell us a bit about your professional journey and give us a brief overview of education abroad at the University of Houston? Absolutely. And with an intro like that, I think that folks are already starting to get a picture of what Houston's like. 
but I've worked in higher education for some time now, and I think that's how we start wording it as we um, put in a decade or more in the field. Um, but I've worked in higher education in a lot of different ways. I started my career actually in residence life. Um, I was a hall director. I advised for RHA and NRHH, and I really enjoyed that. I've been a career counselor as well. I really like that time, and it honestly has stuck with me now um, since then, because I really like to keep the career preparation at the center of what we do with our students, because we be so what, um, where are we going with things? I love to bring that into um, my work in global education. And then since 2015, I've been at the University of Houston working in learning abroad. So at UH, we call it learning abroad because that was our kind of shift in language back then to talk about how it's not just studying, but it's also internships, research, service. I've been in learning abroad since 2015. I started as an advisor, and I've had a really unique opportunity to grow in our office. So I, I was an advisor. I then took the role of interim director of learning abroad. And then through some shifts, I was our assistant director of learning abroad, which led the office. And now I'm the director of global engagement. And I oversee multiple areas of internationalization for the university and help operationalize that. And I basically have been saying for the past eight years that I have the coolest job ever. I love it. I also, in all of this work, kind of bring the lens of my past with me. Um, I'm from Louisiana. And I think that my culture and where I come from and my approach to, to life and to talking to people kind of colors what I do and how I do it. I love to kind of be relational. I like to be transparent and authentic because I can't help it. <laughs> and, um, and I've also been able to work at a lot of great institutions. I worked at the Texas flagship at the University of Texas at Austin. I've worked at a small regional public. I've worked at University of Houston downtown for a bit. And now at the University of Houston, all of these experiences I'm putting together and keeping in mind all the students I've met, the things that have worked in different spaces but I really have come to call Houston home and to call the University of Houston home. That's incredibly well said. I've always enjoyed our conversations in the past about how, you know, sort of those, those formative experiences of yours, you know, working in residence life and in career development, you know, have given you a really a holistic view of mm-hmm. what students need to be successful. So yeah. I really love that. Thank you. You know, I know you're, you're doing some really impressive things around finding pathways for more first-generation students to study abroad, or I should say engaging learning abroad yeah, at the University of Houston. <laughs> what are some unique challenges that these students face in their pursuit of a global experience? So I wouldn't be me if I didn't start with the research. Um, and so it's really important to have an idea of what we're seeing nationally for first-generation college students. A really great resource that our listeners can go to today um, is the resource from the Institute for International Education. They put out a publication in 2022 Leah Mason and Valerie Garcia put this out. I'm a big Leah Mason fan. Um, and it's on supporting pathways for first-gen students to study abroad. So please check that out. It's a free resource. This can really help um, offices and shops to be able to, to kind of contextualize their work as they approach it. But a big stat in this piece of research is that we find that only 8 to 10% of first-gen students even study abroad. However, those that do study abroad are able to graduate within six years, they have a higher graduation rate, they have higher GPAs. So there's there's tangible benefits to actually studying abroad. So if we can reach this population of our students, it really is an automatic benefit for them. But you know, we already know that it's quite challenging for our first-gen students to go abroad. So we see a lot of these challenges being them not being able to have access to the funding that they need. Um, they don't really even know about study abroad. They don't think of it as an option for them. That's a really common response that we get is, oh, I didn't even think that that was for me. Mm, mm -hmm. That's not me. I don't see myself there. I've not um, even considered it. It's not something my family has talked about. 
And then getting the resources, they're not sure where to go. They're not sure what questions to ask. Um, so even starting out as a challenge for these students. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. What you highlighted is critical and helps us to understand this population better. I would love it if you could share some specific ways that you and your team at, at UH are moving these barriers on campus and perhaps beyond. And I really appreciate you saying team because this is an absolute team effort today um, and beyond because we don't just do this um, in our silos. We have to connect across campus. But the way that our team starts out is to make sure that we understand the stats and the, and the challenges of our students. Um, so we know that our first year students are likely to attend college part-time. So we need to make sure that we're finding programs that fit a part-time schedule or can even help keep students on track to graduate on time. Um, we know that um, a lot of these students are students of color. Um, the stats show us that about at least 60% of first-gen students are students of color. And so we have a lot of intersectionality that comes into play here. And are we ready to support students as inter intersectional identities? And so making sure that our team is making sure that we have that professional development in place um, of knowing what is, what is needed to help these students. We know that these students have dependents. They work full-time or part-time. So how do we find the right programs for them? We meet them where they are at. We work on taking down these barriers by knowing who they are and by making relationships. And so are we getting to know the students and are we taking a really strong advising approach? So our team works a lot at the beginning of each year, even for our seasoned advisors and team members, on how do we best advise our students at UH, knowing that we have a large first bid pop, a large high financial need population, a large diverse racial ethnic student group population. So are we as prepared as possible and then are we comfortable and actually then going to be effective in connecting with these students authentically? Because they don't want to be connected with, with just some stats or a flyer that says, you are first gen, go abroad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we're thinking about some of the stuff that we're, we're doing at UH, I really want to talk about our Go for First initiative. Go for First it actually stands for Global Opportunities for First Gen Students. Um, and this is an initiative that's been put together by our team and led by our assistant director of learning abroad, Andy Beard. And Andy actually is a first-gen student, and I really relate to a lot, a lot of what she says here personally as well. I'm not a first-gen college student, but because of the situation in my family, I was I experienced a lot of the challenges similar to those of first-gen students. And trying to figure this out on my own, um, and her trying to figure this out on her own was really challenging. And um, having that story to relate can be a place to start from. Um, you don't have to start from there, but, you know, kind of looking at where your team is at is a great place to start. But Go for First is something that we put together um, as a strategy to reach out to our first-gen students. It starts with understanding the why, like, like I've talked about a lot. Sorry, you know, I'm a little bit research-focused sometimes. Um, so we, we've talked a lot about the why and the stats of it. And then looking at a plan to remove barriers. So that first part of that plan that it starts with relationship building. So not only with the students, but with the folks who run these programs. And then doing the outreach that really gets to them, um, the kind of ways that students like to be met. Meet them where they're at, don't meet them in our 2010 version of outreach, don't meet them in our 2000s version of outreach. We have evolved here and we need to make sure our offices are evolving in the ways that we do outreach. And then creating programs, creating scholarships that can help the students actually get there. You know, I love how you, how you touched upon how these initiatives, you know, truly take a village to be realized. So I love that. Uh, you know, I, I would love for you to expand a bit more on this. Um, so what does this work look like in the day to day of your work in the Institute of Global Engagement? How do you fit this work in 
when the day-to-day task of our work in education abroad can be so consuming? That's a great point. And, you know, the Institute for Global Engagement is bigger than just learning abroad. We house um, our global initiatives area that focuses on global local efforts. We um, house our partnerships. We have our global events. And then looking at the internationalization of the entire university. But one thing that we bring up in our leadership meetings is how can we support first-gen students for our student-facing efforts? And how can we put together policies and partnerships that will focus on or support first-gen students? So just bringing it up, I even think in leadership meetings can really be um, a moment for thought for the leaders in different areas that wouldn't naturally think about this because maybe they're not student-facing. Um, and then if we're talking about our learning abroad team, whew, they focus on this a lot. You know, the first-gen uh, go-for-first effort that we have here, it, it really is more than a strategy. It's a really, it's a big concerted effort. They have an outreach calendar of who they talk to every month. They are working to develop different go-for-first scholarships with our different affiliated program partners. And we're looking at some custom program options with WorldSides and ISA. And so just talking to our partners to figure out what could they do to support this effort? What kind of ways do they already support this effort too? Which I think is important. And then I talked a little bit about reaching out to the students, making sure that all of our outreach catches the students' eye based on the way that they see things today. Um, so getting to the point quickly, are we reaching them on social media, getting to their email inboxes and getting to the point quickly? You know, and I even heard a really great idea just the other day that I think that we need to start considering is talking to student influencers on our campuses and figuring out who they are and seeing if we can strike a partnership with them to promote study abroad um, through their lens. And then the last piece is, and I feel like this comes through with what we're talking about today, I've talked a lot already. Students don't want to hear us talk, right? They want to hear themselves talk. They want to see themselves and their peers. And so having, having students share their stories is really important. And so we, we try to get those stories and share them out as much as we can. I will say that all of this takes work, and it's it's not as if our work is done at UH. We started this initiative last fall, and we've had some bumps along the way. We've had staff leave, we've had turnover, we've had to focus on other things um, to pull back on our on our timeline because we did have a full timeline for this, and. So we're still just chipping away at these efforts, and I think it takes consistent, intentional effort that you know that way we can really get there. You know, I love what you said about lifting up student voices. That's a topic I've been thinking about a lot lately, and and how we can identify, you know, what you said, like the influence influencers on our campuses, and make sure that their voices are the ones that other students hear, and not just ours. Because as you said, we know that Gen Z doesn't want to listen to Maggie and Zach; they want yeah. to listen to one another. Absolutely. <laughs> And, you know, one of the things that I find most interesting when thinking about first generation students are the cultural components. You know, no one's first culture or lived experience is a college campus or is it a study abroad program. So in a way, first generation students are already showing how flexible and adaptable, you know, they can be when they're on our campuses. What else would you like to highlight in terms of what layers these students have to navigate when communicating with folks back home and piloting their own lived experience? So I think the first thing that students are concerned about communicating um, and that find really almost insurmountable is the money piece. To even talk about how they're going to pay for this. And I've had so many students, and I think that many of us can relate with students today, that don't 
bring this up with their parents, with their families, until they're already figured out the money piece. And so then they feel they have to figure out the money piece on their own. And so I think us being aware of that is important and to talk about financial aid and to be good about it before the student is feeling comfortable enough to go back to their families. So does your office have a budget sheet? Does it have um, kind of an outline of the cost or are you meeting with the student and talking through, here's what you could get with an internal scholarship, here's what you already bring to the table with your financial aid, here's an external, here's an opportunity through our offices and our Go For First program to get another $1,000. Those are some of the amounts that we are able to give through some of our unique Go For First scholarships. So getting them comfortable with the money, I think that that's really important. And then the why of it. So in addition to our students being first gen, like I said, more than half um, are from diverse racial and ethnic minority backgrounds. And they have different cultures that they come from, from those backgrounds. Those cultures might not be places for students to leave the family unit based on their gender, based on their age. Maybe they need to stay and work with their family business and they're dependent on them on a daily basis. Maybe they need to take care of their siblings or maybe even take care of their parents. Um, so the why has to be really strong in all of this. Otherwise, family reactions are often that, why would you leave us? Why are you going to go on vacation for a one-month program or for a four-month semester program? And so helping the student prepare all of this in advance and kind of anticipating their questions here, I think is really important in the way that we, we help them with these challenges. Um, and making sure that our teams are comfortable bringing this up and ready to proactively bring this up with our students is important. But I don't think it's just on the advisors. We have our SIO that has interactions with students. We have our leadership team that talks with our deans and with department chairs and making sure that they're able to bring this up in a conversation to let everybody know that there are considerations that all of us have shared ownership on. It's not just on our advisors and learning abroad that are the ones that talk with our students on this concern. I really appreciate what you said, Maggie, about really leaning into advising on the finances early and often. And particularly with this group of students, because as you said, you know, that's really at the heart of what's what's necessary to overcome. Absolutely. And, and one other piece that we're doing is building programs that meet them and their needs. Um, so we are building these go for first scholarship opportunities through our affiliated program partners that we picked a certain amount of program options for a summer session that typically fits their needs. Um, we picked um, a handful of locations that have specific academic options because often we find that our program portfolios are a little bit overwhelming to students. There's too many options and they don't know to go with this provider or that. They just know that they want to go kind of over here and maybe to do this. And this is my academic need. So I guess there's a lot of question in that, right? I'm bringing a lot of questions to my tone on purpose to illustrate that they aren't sure and they don't have the external guidance that others might be getting who, who have families gone abroad before. So if we can put together um, a tailored program portfolio for these students, with working with our affiliated program partners, but also with our custom programs. So I'm really excited about what we're working on at the University of Houston. We are starting an effort for a first-generation faculty-led program this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we received a grant from the Texas International Education Consortium, and we are taking four different folks on a site visit this fall, Delta, Oaxaca, Mexico, with one of our program partners. And we've intentionally picked who's going. So our lead for learning abroad, Andy Beer, is going to go and lead the other three 
um, teach them how to be students and what it's like to go on our faculty-led program. We have a faculty member from the Center for Mexican-American and Latino Latina Studies. And then we have the program director for the Academic Achievers program within that same academic department. And Academic Achievers is a first-generation focused student group that's supported by the university. And it has over 96% of their students are first-gen. And they're primarily Hispanic and Latino students. And that program director's never been abroad. They've never done a study abroad. And we've never seen a program a learning abroad program come from the Center for Mexican-American and Latino Latina Studies. So we were able to finally help them specifically develop a program and to work with that academic achievers program. And then the fourth person attending that program is the director of our formerly TRIO-funded program, the Challenger Program. And this group focuses on first-gen students and supporting them. And it's a really hands-on mentorship-type program for first-gen students. And um, the director from that program is going to go abroad. And we've been working with her for years um, as well. And so we're so excited to get these four folks on the site visit because they've never been on a program abroad. So how are they supposed to be champions for us to be able to take our students? So with the site visit, they're going to see what it's like. Um, and they're going to be able to translate to their students because they have that built trust. They have that authentic relationship with their student groups. They'll retain from year to year to be able to continue sharing this opportunity with their students. So we're going on the site visit, we're doing our recruitment, and then by January, February, we'll have the program. And then we're going to take them on a, a June program to Oaxaca to talk about Mexican-American communities and the communities in Oaxaca as they relate to the Mexican-American communities that we see around Houston. So we're so excited for this. It's a first-in-focus program, and with it, we're adding tailored outreach. We're adding tailored support and advising, pre-departures. We are um, doing a, a family pre-departure of sorts as well. And then we're, uh, we also already provide some of our materials in Spanish. And as you can kind of tell, we have a large Hispanic population, um, a large population of students that have families that speak primarily in Spanish or only in Spanish. And so having those resources are ways to reach the students and their families where they are so that we can help overcome some of these barriers. You know, I love that you're, you're not only collaborating with the, some of the cultural centers at the University of Houston, but actually working with them collaboratively to develop programming options. That's just fantastic. Thanks. I'm so excited. Yeah. I mean, can I go? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, want, I want to expand on that topic just a little bit. You know, we've, we've, we've touched on the fact that it truly takes a village to do this work. Who else is in your circle of champions at the University of Houston, and how are you collaborating with other units? I am a big Circle of Champions fan. So a lot of folks are, are there. We have a lot of great relationships. So not only our Challenger program, which is that trio, previously trio funded program that's now institutionalized, and our Academic Achievers program through the Center for Mexican American Latino Studies. Those are two really big champions that we have. Um, we also work with our Center for Student Empowerment. And this center over the years has ebbed and flowed based on what kind of student support has been needed at the university, whether it be undocumented students, whether it be students coming from the foster care system, students who are first gen, right now is a big focus for them. And so we are also teaming up with them to do recruitment for this. We work with our career services office to t explain the why, not only in the back end for our, our program alumni, but also in the front end to talk about why this is a value add to their degrees. Um, and then we love to get in the colleges. So having champions um, that are globally focused and some of the academic program areas or full-on colleges has been a really big help for us um, to find the allies that naturally have a fit with global um, and then 
how can we help them continue what they're doing? Because we don't have the bandwidth to do this everywhere, but we have the folks who care about it all across campus. So if we can help them do what we're all working on together, it essentially becomes a really large group effort. So let me give you an example. We have a really great program coming up um, that I'm very excited for. Our team's putting on a passport party, but it's not just called a passport party, it's called a first-gen passport party. And so we're inviting the Center for Student Empowerment to have a table, the Challenger Program, Academic Achievers, some of our student affairs folks, and we're going to talk about how to get a passport because whew, we've talked about challenges and barriers and I haven't brought this up yet. Passports is a big um, kind of perceived challenge for students because I say perceived because I've actually been a U.S. passport agent in the past. And once you figure out how to do it, again, once you move beyond the challenges of, of being first gen and overcoming that barrier, it's not so hard. So we want to help them realize they are accessible to it. And what kind of resources does the university give? So this is really neat. Our university has the Passport for Cougs program. And it's housed in our office. So a student gets a free photo. We help them step-by-step step with their passport application. And if they participate in the Learning Abroad program, we'll reimburse the cost of the U.S. passport book to them. So that's $130, $135 value there. Um, so we find ways to help students you know, with the cost of getting a passport, with the challenge of how do I bring it, um, how do I bring all my paperwork to do this month? My parents don't have any of my documents anymore. I was one of those. I had to order my own birth certificate. We can talk with them about how to do that. So this passport party is a great way to get them started, and then we hope we can get more passports processed that way. That's great. Thanks for sharing that, Maggie. You know, what are some pieces of advice you would have for our listeners who would like to begin or strengthen their existing engagement with first-generation students on their campus? know who y'all are because we're all different institutions um, we are all growing towards kind of similar demographics in the u.s but um you know our first-gen students look different in different universities and maybe that's by identity um maybe that's by cultural experiences um maybe that's by the units and programs that they're in or they're able to join and then who are supporting first-gen students on our campuses and connect with them and then put together true ways to make things more accessible and to break down barriers. And don't just assume it's working. Talk with your students to see how things are being perceived. I think that's one benefit that we have here is that we have a group of global guides. They're our peer ambassadors and we're able to talk with them about what we're doing so that they can give feedback on if it's really increasing access. You know, we've been talking broadly and big picture for a lot of this conversation. And I want to give you the opportunity to share some of the success stories that I know you have at the University of Houston. How have you seen UH students be positively impacted by your efforts to create new avenues to study abroad? I think that we're seeing that through the creation of this new faculty-led program, and it's giving access directly to students that we've tried to reach in the past. So we've been trying to reach Challenger, and we've not had a lot of success because they want to go as a cohort. We've not been able to get to Center for Mexican American and Latino Latina Studies because we want to focus on their academics and how do we um, how do we meet them where they are. So we've changed our strategy. We've been adaptable. And then in terms of some success stories, I have a mentee of mine who's become a friend over the years. He graduated in 2019 and he was a first-gen college student and he came from a very low-income background and he, through his time at the University of Houston, he received the Gilman and our scholarship to be able to go abroad for a full academic year on an exchange. He was a runner-up for the Bourne Scholarship and received the Critical Language Scholarship. And then he went on to do a Fulbright and is now in the Foreign Service. 
time. I've really loved working with him because he's been so honest and transparent with me and saying, I didn't think that folks would care about me the way that people have. And I'm so glad that y'all did. You know, he's been really honest about it. And talking through his experiences of what worked has helped me put together a team that is open to being a little bit more authentic, a little bit more vulnerable with their students and asking some tough questions and being comfortable waiting for those answers and supporting the students as they figure out where they're headed to answer those questions. So I think we see it from that one individual student that we make a big difference with to those programs that we're adapting and shaping and, and putting together as we see the need change and grow. I'm a native Texan, as you know, and, um, you know, both of my parents grew up in Houston. So the city has always been near and dear to my heart. What I find a common misconception about the city of Houston is just what a global place it is. Uh, Mackie, could you touch upon how how your students at the University of Houston are able to access global opportunities within the city of Houston itself? One piece that we don't have a ton of time to talk about today, Zach, is that um, students can go global here in Houston without even going abroad. And we find that to be a really great gateway into learning abroad programs. The city of Houston is the fourth largest city in the nation, of course, but over 150 languages are spoken here. We have a consular core of over 90 consulates here in Houston. Um, so we see a lot of international presence kind of on a political and professional level, but we have so many neighborhoods of different cultures. And I think that all of our students are so used to that. We've had students that have come back from studying abroad and said, I was used to being in a really diverse atmosphere and me being abroad in Prague this semester was a little bit different for me because I was actually not around a lot of diversity. They go to a country where that's not the same as what it is here in Houston. Um, so it, it, does, it does pose some unique challenges, but I sure love living here because of the different pockets of neighborhoods that we have, the kind of respect that we have for each other on that. Um, in the way that we grow up learning about it as being a normal thing, in the way that we understand that as we come through our college years here at UH. Yeah, well said. I mean, the the what Houston reminds me of, of being a truly global place is the borough of Queens in, in New York City. It's a really special place. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It, you know, like the city itself, the University of Houston is a very diverse institution in terms of what its student body looks like. Mm-hmm. And, and all of us in international education believe deeply and the power and importance uh, of diversity. How have you seen diversity be a strength for your institution? And how have you seen it make the community and perhaps the world a better place? We're such a culture-rich community here at the university. We've had some students share that they feel like walking across campus is like walking through the UN in New York. I love that. Uh, Because there's so many many different languages, different religions observed, um, different cultural celebrations happening on a pretty consistent basis. And our SIO here at UH loves to say that UH looks like what higher education is going to look like 10 to 15 years from now. We are 33% Hispanic, we are 22% Asian American, 20% white, and we're uh, our African American population is growing. We're at about 11% now, and we have a 9 to 10% international student population. So we have a lot of students in terms of racial demographics that are very diverse. But we also have students that are very diverse in terms of their cultural observations and backgrounds, and they bring that to campus. Um, and we see that celebrated on campus. So I think, you know, we're a very special place in a lot of those regards. Maggie, in 2011, UH became an R1 institution, earning its place among the other top tier universities, not only in Texas, but throughout the United States. That's a really impressive feat and so well deserved. How have you seen that development ripple throughout the campus and community 
especially as it relates to international higher education. Well, thank you for um, celebrating us. And I'll add one more celebration to that, actually, Zach. We just found out a couple of days ago that um, in the rankings, um, we've moved from 91st as a public institution in the U.S. to 70th in the nation. Oh, um, and congrats. Thank you. And we are on a really big goal to hit top 50 um, in the next few years. And so we want to, we're seeking to be a top 50 instit- public institution in the nation. And we're really on our way to achieving that. I think that we've seen a really big growth because of our leadership, because of our president. If you don't know about Dr. Kapoor, I think you should take some um, side quests here and go check out um, who she is and what she's done for you, Rich. But we've seen that development, that growth um, in terms of our research growth, in terms of our um, reputation, in terms of our outreach. It's grown for international education because we've, um, we've brought UH to the world and we've brought the world to UH. We've grown our international program opportunities for our students through learning abroad. We've increased that kind of research component of it. We've also grown in our outreach to to students on some nationally competitive opportunities. We're a top producing Fulbright institution now, and we've been a top producing Gilman institution recently in the past, and we're hoping to get back there. And so we've, we've brought more fellowships and nationally competitive scholarships to our students and helped them raise the bar to, to be able to attain those scholarships and fellowships. Um, so those are just some of the ways that we're getting there and continuing to grow. That's terrific. Thanks for sharing that, Maggie. Yeah. Uh, you know, you always impress me with the things that you do, my friend. And <laughs> in 2022, you were named a Gilman International Scholarship Advisor Ambassador by the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. In this role, you work to inform and advise colleagues at diverse colleges and universities throughout the United States, sharing your expertise and best practices for guiding students through the application process, as well as providing input on program policies and implementation. That is a big deal. Tell us more about how you got there and some of the takeaways you have about Gilman so far. You know, Zach, honestly, I got here um, from the support of my colleagues as we focused more and more on Gilman. In 2015, um, I joined the team and immediately joined the Gilman panel um, and started being a Gilman advisor. And I loved what the program was. I wish I would have known about it when I was a college student. Said about half of our students always, right? Um, So many of our students who didn't know about the Gilman and go on to graduate or it's too late for them to apply, wish they would have known about this great program. And I really love and believe in the mission of the Gilman Scholarship Program because it's there for Pell-eligible students. It seeks to support underrepresented students in study abroad. Specifically, it seeks to support STEM students, racial and ethnic diverse um, students, and it seeks to um, help students get more access to to learning abroad programs. So my work has just been an advisor over the years. I have kind of developed some of our efforts on campus, and whenever I applied to get this role, I was able to share some of that. And now, as a Gilman Advisor Ambassador, I'm able to connect with others from different campuses, such diverse different campuses as well. What are they doing on their campuses? What has worked? How do we kind of grow best practices? And then how do we collectively as advisor ambassadors help share these resources and help kind of develop new Gilman advisors on their campuses so that we can continue to grow the Gilman program nationally? Um, it's been so great to meet with other advisors and these advisor ambassadors. It's been great to collaborate. I also had a really great opportunity to present on panels at conferences um, and to do webinars with the Gilman. And so 
one other big important piece is that this group helps give feedback to the Gilman program to change their policies or to kind of give them ideas on what advisors need and they will listen to us. Wow, and they've done such a great job at taking the feedback and seeing what can be incorporated into their policies and procedures. So it's been a great experience. That's really great and, and just a terrific service to our field. So thank you for thank you for doing that, Maggie. Oh, thank you. And, you know, I always think of, of serving on a Gilman panel as a great opportunity for, for those of us who might be in the early to mid-career part of our international education journeys. I would love if you could share some advice for some of our listeners who may be considering um, volunteering on a, to serve on a Gilman panel. Why should they do so? New and mid-level professionals should actually do this, and supervisors should encourage their teams to do this. Serving on a panel, make sure that advisors really are knowing kind of the pulse of students across the nation. They understand where students are, what their focus is, maybe their approach to applying for naturally um, competitive scholarships. They get to see what matters to students, um, the ways that they kind of communicate those concerns and those goals. Uh, it's such a professional development opportunity that you don't get the same kind of development from going to a conference or watching a webinar. And it takes time, and I will say over the years, because I've done it almost once a year up until a couple years ago, you get better at it and you get able, it really teaches you how to go through a lot of applications um, and find what we're looking for and be able to be as, as supportive to your applicants as possible through the process. So it's a really great way to grow and to grow your Gilman program. Yeah, so not only are you growing as a professional yourself, you are also serving your students and and, and advancing the goal that we all share is yeah. increasing access to study abroad. So, Absolutely. So thanks for sharing that advice, Maggie. Yeah. You know, because you're just not doing enough. <laughs> you recently earned a doctorate in ethical leadership uh, last year as well. That's another huge achievement and congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. I believe your dissertation was on the relationship between student involvement and global competence. How do you bring what you learned in your academic journey to the workplace and your interactions with students in goal setting and in your professional relationships at UH? You know, whenever you do a doctorate and you write a dissertation and you present on it and prepare it and propose it, you become an expert in that concept. Um, and so I've been able to take the concept of global competence and break it down. It's what we hope our students gain. And it's how we, it's what we keep in mind when we specifically develop programs that have learning outcomes for them to gain, right? So I've been able to essentially take this and translate it to students on, here's what we're hoping you get. And if you do this interaction, this activity, this assignment, um, that can help develop you in this way. And the, the outcome is this. And so then from your outcomes of going on a program abroad, in terms of your career piece, you can help be prepared to do X, Y, Z. So translating it, I think, um, has been a really great skill that I've picked up to talk with students on. And then, uh, you because know, we know that Gen Z really wants the why and what we're do what they're doing so that they can see the value add to their careers and to their efforts. And then the other piece is that it's really helped me professionally. I've been able to demonstrate the really important need of student involvement as a concept for our students um, to some of our faculty, to some of the administrators. I looked at a couple different aspects of involvement, living on campus, being in a student organization, and going abroad. Um, and showing the importance of those things and being able to specifically provide that research and those stats quickly to say, this is important and it does help the students become more globally competent or it is connected in this way. I think that's helped me um, as I advocate for internationalization at the University of Houston 
and it's really brought me to the next level as I've taken on my new role as well. Lastly, I just have one more question for you, my friend. As you think about study abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? So when I think of study abroad in 2024, I think of us far more in a post-pandemic year. And I did take us through the, the COVID pandemic at the University of Houston. But man, I've been really encouraged as we come back from the pandemic um, and as we move forward. So many more students want to travel. They've seen opportunities taken away from them. Um, and they are motivated to get out into the world now. And so I'm really excited about the momentum that's happening. And I really hope that our areas and offices and efforts can keep up with the pace of their excitement. So students want to go again. How can we help them get there? Can we um, show the financial pathways? Can we show the value adds? Can we have a program that's really developmental? And can we fit within their time frame? I think we can do all of that. This field is evolving. This field is noticing what is going on in terms of um, some of our old policies and procedures, and we're updating it. Um, so I encourage every single professional out there that's working hard to continue to, to update and evolve our efforts to keep going because it's helping the students, and that's why I have hope for 2024 and beyond. Here, here. So incredibly well said. Dr. Maggie Mahoney, thank you so much for being here. I feel like I want to get to work uh, <laughs> after this conversation. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis. And please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World Strides colleagues, Lindsay Kelchner and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives for Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.